0: Now, our first witness this morning is Butch. Well, when the fight broke out, I got stabbed in the back and I I pulled my knife and hit him. That was the first person I would kill.
1: Butch Crouch was a Hell's Angel who'd murdered people and then rolled over and became a government witness.
2: He was giving up details of this crime only somebody that was there would have known about. What good's a man? In his right
1: hand, he had an automatic handgun and blood over his chest.
3: What exactly happened
1: here? Two people were murdered. A house was set on fire. Because of Crouch, I've been hiding in the Witness Protection Program for most of my life. But I'm done hiding. From C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, welcome to Relative Unknown, a new podcast about the stories and family we can't escape. Download Relative Unknown for free now on radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows.
4: What Really Happened is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Goertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. I'm your writer and host, Andrew Jenks, and can be found on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Andrew Jenks. Let's get this story started. Sally Mann once said, Photographs open doors into the past, but they also allow a look into the future. After the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11th, 2001, The United States of America spent nearly 10 years, and really many years before that, attempting to track down and kill the man most responsible, Osama bin Laden. On May 1st, May 2nd in Pakistan, 2011, the United States Navy SEALs of the U.S. Naval Special Warfare Development Group did just that in an operation codenamed Operation Neptune Spear.
0: Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world, the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of
4: al-Qaeda. There was one photo from that day which has reached that upper echelon of iconic photos from U.S. history. Interestingly, the celebrated photo isn't a photo of one of the Navy SEALs on the ground during the operation. It isn't even a photo from the raid. It isn't a photo of a dead bin Laden, not his body being dumped in the North Arabian Sea, nor a photo captured on some sort of automatic camera attached to a helicopter from the mission. Instead, what became an iconic photo from that day in history is a bunch of people squeezed into a conference room. This now iconic photo is simply titled the Situation Room. During parts of the operation, the President of the United States, members of his cabinet, and other key officials watched in the Situation Room. I remember when I first saw this photo thinking... That's the Situation Room? The room doesn't look like those out of a television show. You don't see any fancy LCD screens, maps which are color-coded by where there's the highest chance of war breaking out. I don't know, something that you and I couldn't believe hearing actually exists. There's a secret presidential elevator to the moon type of stuff. But ultimately, it just looks like a very basic conference room. In this photo, we see about half of what seems to be a pretty long table, There are a half dozen laptops, an office coffee cup that looks like those paper coffee cups that are in most offices, has like different shades of brown. It's a good example of how normal the photo is and then how surreal it becomes. Because right next to that brown coffee cup is another coffee cup which is stamped with the presidential seal. Six are sitting, seven standing around. Two other people who are standing are technically in the photo, their chest and shoulder respectively but you can't see either of their faces. There also seems to be the back of someone's head, and then there's one individual, as it turns out, who was cropped out of the photo because it would be too wide of a shot. Everyone is looking up at something, what the public safely assumes to be monitors, watching the raid taking place in real time. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton covers her mouth. She reportedly had allergies, but as one can imagine, there are conspiracy theories around that. Vice President Joe Biden looks somber and sort of slumped in his chair. A lieutenant general sits at the head of the table, busy on a laptop, likely making sure they can communicate with the two men on the monitors, which is the man in charge of the mission, General William McRaven, in Pakistan. And also up on a screen is then CIA Director Leon Panetta at CIA's headquarters in Langley, Virginia. There is also one other thing they are looking at, and that is the mission itself, President Barack Obama, wearing a blue windbreaker and a white-collared golf shirt, sits in the back corner of the room, watching on with everyone else. I've got to see this, he reportedly said. I've always had basic questions. Like, when exactly was the photo taken? Turns out it's not so simple. Was it during the raid? Had they known bin Laden was dead yet? Why was that room so damn small? And what was it like for those 13 people? The main players, if you will... Obama, Clinton, Biden, and Gates, have talked about this photo and the experience in various ways, through books they've written, speeches they've given, and interviews on shows like 60 Minutes.
0: And what I've tried to do is make sure that every time I sit down in the Situation Room, every one of my advisors around there knows I expect them to give me their best assessments. I've worked for a lot of these guys, and this is one of the most courageous calls,
1: uh, decisions, that I think I've ever seen a president make. And then finally, you know, all the helicopters were up and out and on their way back to Afghanistan.
4: Unlike these quote unquote main players, unless you're really into politics or government, you likely don't know some of the people also in the photo. Again, there's 13 faces you can see in total. So I wondered what were their accounts? I had no idea who a few of them were and so began doing some research. Some individuals did interviews here and there, but not as much as I would have thought. And so I got in touch with some interesting people. Some had been in the Situation Room right around the time the photo was taken, but were, well, maybe smoking a cigarette. I spoke with Ben Rhodes, one of Obama's most trusted advisors.
2: Yeah, it was an interesting moment for me. Um, you know, at first I also, I, I, you know, I actually. That famous photo with obama I, I i was outside i was too nervous to go in the room
4: <laughs> then i was able to get in touch with an official who technically is in the photo meet nick
3: i'm in the um uh, the famous one but my shoulder blade is in it that's about all you, know? <laughs> you can kind of see my clavicle you can just see kind of a, the top of a shirt
4: you know a, a shoulder <laughs> and
3: that was my uh, my contribution to that photo
4: then i was able to get in touch with an official whose face is in the photo barely making it as his head peeks from above the shoulder of the chief of staff at the time, Bill Daly. Meet Tony. You know, and if you look at that picture,
5: um, uh, I'm, in the, I'm in the background, uh, kind of leaning in. And a couple of weeks later, after all of this had happened, um, Mike Mullen, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was on the David Letterman show. And Letterman pulls up this photograph on TV, on national TV, zooms in on me in the background and says to to Mullen, this guy's not supposed to be there, (laughs) right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) He just wandered in off the tour.
4: CNN called it a photo for the ages, and it's on any number of lists chronicling the most famous photos in American history. Once I had spoken with Tony, Nick, and Ben, I needed to track down one more person. And that was the one person necessary for the photo to even happen White House photographer Pete Souza.
1: I couldn't really move while I was in that little room uh, because I would have had to push people out of the way, you know, and I wasn't about to do that. It's just trying to not make any noise, not affecting what's taking place at all. And I thought the angle I had was pretty good.
4: This is the timeline of that full day, the day Bin Laden was killed, from those who are a part of this photo's history, this photo's story. These are the people we hardly read about in the news, the people who are not household names. We know what happened, at least what's not classified. Osama Bin Laden was killed, and a group of senior US officials and the president watched from the Situation Room. But we've largely received this information from the main players who are in the room or on screen. But maybe it's equally interesting or even more telling to hear from the people in the room who don't have to worry so much about their own legacy. Maybe their version is a bit more straight. Maybe their version can help tell us the story of what really happened. During the Obama administration, Ben Rhodes was Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications. He worked with Obama from the start of his presidential campaign all the way through the presidency. Many say if there's anyone who knows the president, it's Ben. He was a big part of the Cuba agreement, the Cuban thaw, in 2015 when the U.S. and Cuba made steps towards normalizing relations. But then what were called sonic attacks happened. People started hearing these bizarre noises. The current administration started to empty out the embassy, it's a long story, we retell it this season, episode two in secret Sonic Warfare. The point is I brought up to him in our conversation the situation room photo because he was with Obama for such a long time, particularly on the national security side. as a reminder, when the photo was taken, Ben was first
2: i also, I, I you know I actually that famous photo with obama i i I was outside I was too nervous to go in the room. <laughs>
4: I was already thinking of doing an episode on the Situation Room photo. I did have some basic questions, but most of the main players were ignoring me. They wouldn't respond to requests for interviews, or they declined. So I thought some more. Maybe there's another story. Then I got in contact with some of those whose names I hadn't heard of before. I reached out to them, but a few of those individuals are still actively serving and also politely declined. That's when I figured I'd ask Ben if he could put me in touch with others in the photo who are oftentimes overlooked in the press. People who were also integral in the months leading up to the raid and don't really get their due. I was surprised that after thinking it through, Ben did have two specific people in mind.
2: Tony Blinken and Nick Rasmussen might be people that are, who's, who, I've never heard them talk about this publicly, but we're certainly in every room.
4: Nick Rasmussen was the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. It's a pretty serious job.
2: He definitely gets overlooked.
4: Nick joined the State Department as an intern in 1991 and has worked under several administrations, including George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and he even lasted a year in the Trump organi- I, I mean, administration.
2: He was kind of the guy responsible for moving the pieces around.
4: By responsible for the moving pieces around, well... It was Nick's job to bring together other federal agencies like the FBI, CIA, and Defense Department. The National Counterterrorism Center, which she led, had begun at the recommendation of the 9-11 Commission. To me, it seems like, among others, Nick's hard work was playing out in real time on that day. Nick was headed to the office that morning on May 1st, 2001. The sun was rising at 6:11 a.m., And it was a nice day overall in D.C., about 68 degrees. And by four in the afternoon, Osama bin Laden would be dead. But Nick doesn't know yet what will happen. So he makes an unlikely stop on the way to the Situation Room.
3: I don't consider myself particularly religious. You know, I kind of grew up with a Catholic upbringing, but I'm not the world's most religious person. But on the way to work that morning, since it was a Sunday morning, I literally just stopped in, you know for 10, 15 minutes at our neighborhood Catholic church near where I live in Alexandria, Virginia. And I just wanted a few moments of kind of quiet solitude before going into work. Um, you know, I, would say, say a prayer, but I don't know how, how, how truly religious I am, but I, I was certainly thinking of the, you know, the men who would be in harm's way that day. If, um, you know, just how consequential a day it was going to be. If, uh, Uh, if the operation um, did in fact commence that day. And I just wanted a couple minutes alone, you know, in that kind of church setting just to, you know, have a good thought for, um, um, you know, that everybody would come back safely and and, uh, it would turn out right. And so then after that, continued on my way to work.
4: The second person Ben thought of... Tony Blinken would have been in every meeting. During the raid in 2011, Tony Blinken was the deputy assistant to the president and national security advisor to the vice president. As a reminder, Tony is the man you can see in the photo and who Letterman joked about. He sure seems like one very nice guy. Hey, Tony, it's Andrew Jenks. How are you? And then in my research, I also noticed that there's not, you don't talk a lot about, uh, or at least have been interviewed a lot or haven't spoken a lot about what happened during that bin Laden raid? Is there is there any reason for that, or maybe I'm just overthinking it? You know, I think I haven't spoken a lot
5: about uh, the, the small part I played in the bin Laden mission, in part because the entire group that was involved, we saw it as a, an extraordinary responsibility. I think uh, we were, each of us took some pride in whatever role uh, we played, but it's not something that we've celebrated or... Um, or made it a big deal of beyond what happened in the total course of events. And so uh, it's just something that I think we look back on as a both a process and a, and then a moment of, um, of great satisfaction seeing justice done uh, after so many years, um, and it should
4: speak for itself. Damn, Tony, we miss guys like you. Don't forget these individuals, Ben, Tony, and Nick, knew for quite a while this secret America may know where Osama bin Laden is. Nick, the former director of the National Counterterrorism Center, said, Think about Hmm. how often
3: secrets leak in Washington, including really, really, really important secrets. And for this not to have leaked in the run-up speaks to, you know, I would say uh, a lot of things, but it speaks to the character of all of those people who were involved. They could keep that secret as much as they might have wanted to tell somebody.
4: Oh, wow. Um, That's such a good point. Um, right. You say over two, two dozen interagency meetings, you'd written absolute attention to operational security, discretion and secrecy. So Exactly. And that
3: meant, that meant cutting out and not, and not talking about it with a lot of people who were very close to you personally and professionally and who you worked with on very
4: sensitive things. Said Tony Blinken.
5: First, for some of us, a small group of us, this is a very, very uh, long, long process. Um, A very small group of us in the the White House, literally a handful, were apprised of the information the intelligence community developed the previous uh, August or September.
3: I know one of the things that worried me was, how am I going to explain to certain members of my team why this person and not that person got to be involved, because it's not as if I couldn't have used more help, or it's not because I, I certainly had
5: trust in those other individuals. Most of the major um, cabinet secretaries didn't know what was going on. Um, A half dozen of us in the White House did. Obviously, folks in the intelligence community, a very small number in the Department of Defense. Uh, And then it wasn't until into the the next year that um, Admiral McRaven came in to actually develop an operation.
3: You know, there was just this
5: uh, almost ruthless attention to secrecy here.
4: For season one of this show, I was really exhausted. It wasn't the work. I love the work. I run to work. It was that I woke up a lot of mornings in a crappy mood. Not a lot of energy. A lower back that always felt sore. For season two, myself and really the whole team took it up another level in terms of episodes, hopefully quality of the content. But for me, during season two, I didn't find myself exhausted. Instead, I got a sleep number bed, which has been a game changer for me. I'm able to pick my ideal firmness, which makes a huge difference. Also, the sleep number 360 smart beds are so smart, they censor every move, so they automatically adjust to me, keeping me sleeping comfortably throughout the night. My sleep number setting is 50. My partner's is, so I don't have one, so sometimes what I do is I go to the other side of the bed and lay there and try to imagine what type of sleep number my ideal lady friend would have. It's also 50. Sleep Number has been ranked highest in customer satisfaction with mattresses by J.D. Power. For 2018 award information, visit JDPower.com. This part is really important. Come in during the January savings event and save up to $500 on select number 360 smart beds. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 500 and 75 Sleep Number stores nationwide, visit, and this is important, visit sleepnumber.com W-R-H, as in what really happened, sleepnumber.com W-R-H to find the one nearest you. Time to meet Pete Souza. Pete Souza is the former chief official White House photographer for both U.S. Presidents Reagan and Obama. He was Obama's official photographer for all eight years and worked with him while he was still a senator. He traveled everywhere with the president and along with his team, took around 1.9 million photos while Obama was president. Pete is a funny and interesting guy. He was included on the New Republic's list of Washington's most powerful, least famous people. When the time called for it, he had no issues using an iPhone. And of those nearly 2 million photos today's photo would likely become his most famous. Uh, My wife was
1: a little surprised that I was going into the office. And I told her that I'm probably going to be gone most of the day and probably
4: most of the night.
1: And she knew enough not to ask any questions. And quite frankly, there wasn't much I could tell her anyway.
4: All four of their spouses didn't find it too suspicious they were leaving for work on Sunday morning because... It
5: was not exactly um, a rare thing for, to be in the office for a chunk of the weekend. It's not unusual for me to be in the office on Saturday and Sunday. We gathered, I think, around 7.30 a.m. in the Situation Room. The cabinet-level folks came in and the president came in a little bit later, I think around 10, 10.30 a.m.
3: Literally, we spent the morning hours at the White House just kind of continuing to do a lot of the preparatory staff officer work of just preparing, I hate to say paper, but paper. We had a bunch of different playbooks of, okay, if things go well, this is what needs to happen in the aftermath, you know, all the different steps we need to take, and also if things go, you know, badly, if it's um, a disastrous military operation or Bin Laden proves not to be there, and we have to, you know, contain the firestorm in the aftermath of an operation where we violated another country's sovereignty, Pakistan. You know, those were all scenarios we were playing with. So we had kind of detailed playbooks for each of those scenarios. And we were putting the finishing touches on some of that work, even as that day started.
4: Much of this work was going on in the Situation Room. The room I assumed would look like it was from the future, but apparently it was like any other conference room. So your office is on the ground floor. You're just down the hallway from the Situation Room. Uh, what, what's the, if there's a way to, I don't know, describe it, what's the energy like around the Situation Room? Do you, is it like when you, this is elementary here, but you, you walk by the principal's office, you kind of make sure you don't smile because you never know what's going on in the principal's office, or how, how does that work?
2: I think it'd be interesting to people, uh, you know, you have to enter the Situation Room through like a door without a window, right? And, and when you pass through that door, it's like you're passing through a different kind of universe.
4: What I learned was that it isn't the Situation Room as much as it is the Situation Rooms.
2: There's three different conference rooms um, of different sizes. On the walls are the times. And, you know, it always says the time in where the president is. It always says the time on Zulu time, which is the 24-hour clock used by the U.S. military. But then there's also the time in, like, whatever the place is in the world where there's a crisis. So it'll be the time in, in Kabul or in Moscow or you know. And so you feel like you're walking onto a, the set of a drama, you know, where you know you're gonna be responding to something, you know these decisions are weighty, um, the 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 clocks are on twenty four hour time, so there's kind of a military aspect to it. And at all times somebody's in there. Like, you know, from the, the crack of dawn till the end of the day, there's some meeting taking place in there that is likely about, you know, a pretty weighty matter. It could be whether or not to have an operation that kills somebody, right? It could be a question of war and peace. It it could be a matter of of our foreign policy. So um, it is a different energy around it. And you do feel inside of it because it's heavily secure. There are no windows, like you're in some inner sanctum um, where, you know, where a select number of people are making pretty important decisions.
4: And Peter, it's when you're in the Situation room that you discover that you know you hear that they're talking about bin Laden. What's that like for you when you when it's finally in a way revealed to you what they've been talking about this whole time?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of one of those things where you know you suspect what it might be, but then when you hear it, it's like, holy shit. Um, that's what I thought, right? Holy shit. And I and I and I said to myself, um. You know, you 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 do a job like this. You take this job as a White House photographer, knowing, you know, the the sacrifice you make in terms of your personal time and family time. Mm-hmm. You take this job because you want to be there when history is happening.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, I was keenly aware that this would be a very historic day, and you know, didn't know how it was going to turn out, but knew that success or no success, this is going to be a momentous
3: day. Uh, so that's what I was thinking right away.
4: There was a weird component to the room.
3: Certainly the people at the White House, and up to and including the president, I imagine, did not want to be interfering or somehow appearing to be, you know, micromanaging this military operation from, you know, 5,000 miles away or however many thousand miles away it is. So that's a little bit of a, you know, it doesn't usually work that way. But McCraven, and the other senior military leaders also knew that there was there needed to be visibility at the White House and and, and in real time as to what was happening, and so they set up this communications link that allowed um, Bill McRaven to be on video conference, and he was both monitoring and commanding the operation in, inside his military-only communications channel, but then also connected to. White House and other departments and agencies like the CIA and um, you know, the Defense Department at the Pentagon so that he could, in effect, help us all maintain situational awareness, You know, know what was going on.
2: And what happened that day is we were in the large conference room, which is across the hall, meeting with President Obama and you know, all of his top aides. And Obama learned that across the hall there was this
5: general who was monitoring the the raid. There was a feed that was going right into the smaller conference room that was giving kind of real time narration from Admiral McRaven, uh, and, uh and others at the Pentagon uh, as the mission was moving forward.
2: And so basically, he realized there was a better seat. <laughs> um, and so he walked across the hall and went into that room. And what was interesting, you can tell in that picture, the general is sitting at the head of that table. Obama goes in and just sits in a small, kind of fold out chair almost next to him. And then everybody else just kind of packed into the room to be in the room where the president was.
1: And they were afraid to switch it to the big room. They thought they might lose the signal. They didn't realize the president wanted to be there while the raid was taking place. So that's how we found ourselves in that little room.
4: This was news to me. They didn't realize the president was going to watch? The famous photo in the smallest of the Situation Rooms almost never happened. Of all the different moving parts, it seems like nobody thought, and there was a lot going on, that Obama would ultimately sit and watch parts of the raid. We also had some things up on the screen, not,
5: as you might imagine from a movie, the Navy SEALs with cameras on there, uh, on them, uh, giving us that kind of granular view of what was going on. No, this was from way, way, way above, so you couldn't make out um, much beyond uh, kind of dots moving around what was happening.
4: In the Situation Room, in the days and months leading up to the raid, President Obama wanted other people's opinions.
5: And this is a hallmark of, uh, of President Obama, which is to say that, um, you know, if you're in the Situation Room, no matter where you were sitting, if you were at the table, if you were behind the table, as in this case I was, he, uh, he wanted to hear from everyone. And he wanted to hear from people who were um, uh, seated along the perimeter of the room, as well as the... Uh, the folks at the table. So yes, I had an opportunity on on, on a number of occasions when he was um, sitting in the chair to uh, you know give my uh, my views and opinion.
4: What did each of these guys say to the president? Tony Blinken and Nick Rasmussen were understandably vague.
5: Look, I don't I don't want to say what what my own advice and counsel was. I think it's, it's appropriate that 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 stay in the uh, in the room. I had expressed
3: my view that I thought this was a risk worth taking and i'm might even
4: have said that in the presence of the president i don't know vice president joe biden asked ben rhodes what he was thinking
2: it's interesting you know, we were the younger guys who'd been with obama on the campaign and so sometimes he would turned to us to could be like you know hey what do you think the boss is thinking um and uh, not that he didn't have his own window into that but i think he liked to just test different weather vanes you know and we said to him look you know obama's uh always said he would do this. You know, back in the campaign, we had this big dust-up because Obama said he'd go into Pakistan and get bin Laden. So we just had an instinct that, like, you know, this was a risk that he was going to take.
4: Nick has worked for different presidents and didn't want to compare leadership styles, but said... I mean, I can, I can
3: talk about how I, I assessed or evaluated how Obama, you know, operated in this particular environment, on this particular... Mission in question, and one of the things that I admired was he. As you you've done a lot of, when, I'm sure, in doing your, your background research, you've seen you know the questions about whether the intelligence was 50% um, likelihood of being right, or 70%, or 80%. Um, you know, those were all things we were kind of debating at the table in the days and weeks leading up to this, and some people around that table, including very, very senior people, were getting very hung up on whether, you know, do we think there's a 50% chance, an 80% chance, a 75% chance? And one of the things I admired about the president was he internalized, it seemed to me, very early on that he wasn't going to get certainty, and absent certainty whether the number was 60 or 70, 80 or 50 probably didn't mean a whole lot in terms of the decision he would have to make. He had to make a decision, and it really in the end became binary for him, it seemed. Um, Is there enough of a chance that we have to do this? And that's, I think, where he came down. There was enough of a chance that there really wasn't a way to not do this. You know, I think everybody in the White House um, and others assembled had extremely high confidence in the skills and capability and the professionalism of of the, the guys doing the operation. But then there was just all these unknowns. You know, things go wrong even when things are really well planned and really well executed. And so there was a lot of nervous apprehension in the period leading up to the arrival on the compound, just all these unknowns.
4: Speaking of unknowns, as it turns out, in the corner of the room is perhaps the most invisible guy, who is working with his own set of unknowns. I've always wanted to better understand the stock market and sort out how you invest and what's that like, and maybe I could even make a little bit of money, but the idea of this always felt, I don't know, it was kind of petrifying. And then I was introduced to Robinhood, which is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They make financial services work for me, someone who's new to all of this. They have a simple, intuitive, clear design with data that is presented in a way that I can understand. There's also no commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees So trade stocks and keep all of your profits. The easiest thing for me is they have these charts, and I love a good chart, and you're able to understand them. I've been able to place a trade in just four taps on my iPhone. All you have to do is ask any teacher I've had, high school teacher, whatever, any teacher, and you'll uh, learn that I learn by doing, if I learn at all. So I've learned how to invest while building my portfolio, if I don't say so myself. I've discovered new stocks, and I'm able to actually track some of the companies that I have a vested interest in seeing do well. I also get custom notifications for price movements so I don't miss the right moment to invest. The coolest part in all of this, Robinhood, is giving listeners, our listeners, a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at happened.robinhood.com. That's happened. happened.robinhood.com. Pete, seeing your and reading about your work ethic and being there for so much, was there any precedent or, or having been in that room prior to know the best angle, even if it was subconscious?
1: Uh, no, I mean, I had never been in that room uh, to
4: make pictures before. And I assume, safe to say, you're not using any sort of flash. No. Is there any clicking noise the camera makes? I assume not. I mean I in my experience it does make a noise, but Yeah.
1: It it it's there's a uh silent mode on the camera, but it's it, it it's not really silent. It's quiet, um uh, so it's not very uh noticeable. Uh but yet I you know, I wouldn't use motor drive rapid succession of frames. Uh so I would try to do one frame at a time just to make it that much quieter.
4: And so you you say in your book it was, you took that photo at 4.05 p.m. frame 210. Does that mean it was the 210th photo you took that day, or?
1: Uh, yeah, that day. Uh, I ended up taking more than 1,000 that day, uh, a little over 100 in that room.
4: Is there any worry at any point, like battery level, or, or something that's, you know?
1: <laughs> no, I mean, the biggest concern I had was,
4: Uh, Was depth of field. With
1: a a room like that that's not that well-lit, you you want to be able to try to see clearly everybody's faces. And yet, you know, you got Bob Gates right next to you and you got Barack Obama far away from you and you want them to be, you know, as much in focus, both of them, as possible.
4: Pete's photograph is interesting because it's a bunch of people looking at something that we can't see. And so without context, you don't know what that something else even is. Everyone I spoke with do remember that General McRaven was giving an intricate play-by-play. And Tony Blinken recalls McRaven from the outset was vital. I'm realizing, per what you said earlier, you you may not want to answer this, um, that when Admiral McRaven comes, comes to see the president after the rehearsals, and says that, yes, you know, we can do this. And mm-hmm. I think you've talked about how Admiral McCraven has this confidence, while also not in the slightest, is blustering or bragging. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you recall the president saying anything to you after this, when he hears that McCraven says, listen, we can do this? Look, without attributing any,
5: any particular words to the president, what I can tell you is that Admiral McCraven both, throughout the process and in that final um, uh, meeting in particular uh, just created a, an extraordinary sense of, of confidence, uh, I think, in the president and in, in the entire senior senior team that, yeah, we can do this. Um, and it's exactly as you described it. He was confident without being uh, blustery, without being uh, arrogant. And, and the higher the pressure got, uh, the lower his temperature got, uh, and the uh, and, and ditto his blood pressure, um, a truly extraordinary leader, and he just inspired confidence in uh, in everyone from the president on down. So I think it, you know, was that little extra uh, something that I, I I don't know this the president didn't tell me this, but I think probably gave the president the confidence to uh, again go ahead on the basis of very very imperfect information. If he made the decision to go,
3: he had to be prepared to live with the risk of being us having bad intelligence and, and similarly, if he chose not to go, he'd have to live with the risk. If it was you know, proven later that Bin Laden was there and he hadn't acted, think about how politically devastating that would have been to President Obama or any administration if they had, you know, quote, failed to act on information like that. Could bring,
5: could, could, could ultimately destroy his presidency. Once the mission was actually launched, it is just this intense process of
4: waiting. The Navy SEALs first had to get to Pakistan and Bin Laden's compound. This took about ninety minutes. So we all were just
2: kind of sitting there, and you know, I remember the couple of stories that stood out. Um, I think one was Dennis McDonough, who ended up being White House chief of staff. Um, he was a Capitol Hill staffer, and he was describing the chaos. Uh, in the Capitol, as uh, people were kind of evacuated and they're running, and, and there's bad information. They, there was people thought that a plane was headed towards the Capitol. And in fact, plane may have been headed towards the Capitol. That was probably Flight 93. And so that you know, gave a sense of uh, I wasn't in Washington that day, but the, the set, I was you know, a picture of you know, the real seat of American government feeling under attack. And then there was somebody else there who had been at the Pentagon that day and was kind of describing the scene of, you know, uh, just, uh, ho- horrendous, uh, you know, uh, fire and people badly burned and, and trying to evacuate people. Um, and so the stories that were most resonant, um, and visceral were the ones about, uh, you know, people being in places that you know, had been actively
3: under attack.
4: Nick talked to me about where he was in life around the time of September 11th, 2001.
3: Some number of days after 9-11, I had the, um, the head of the office at the National Security Council staff doing terrorism-related stuff um, at the time of 9-11 was a guy named Dick Clark, pretty famous, in, you know, at least in government circles. And Dick had been my first boss at the State Department in 1991 when I came out of school. And then here he was at the White House and he had asked me to come work for him um, doing terrorism stuff at the National Security Council. And I, I think July, somewhere in July, I interviewed with Condoleezza Rice. And just, you know, the process kind of worked out that I would start you know, sometime after Labor Day. And the picked a day on the calendar. was a Monday because I was a, when, you know, HR folks wanted people to show up on Mondays for orientation. And mine just happened to be, you know, September 16th or 17th, something like that. Um, so sitting at home, you know, having finished my uh, other job, but waiting to start at the White House, and then, you know, literally sitting at home, um, watching the news on September 11th, knowing I was supposed to be joining the office at the White House doing this work, um, you know, just a few days later. And, then, and of course, a few days later, I did jump in with, uh, with the others. So it was kind of a weird bit of fate. Um, and it really ended up being kind of a turn towards this set of issues that kind of took my career
4: um, in a different direction from, you know, pretty much the last 17, 18 years. That direction helped the NSC, the National Counterterrorism Center, where multiple agencies communicated to combat terrorism. In some ways, May 1st, 2011, was an example of this work.
2: And I'd been in New York City and had kind of seen the second plane hit the tower and the, the first tower fall, And and so, you know, it, it was interesting is in, in this hour and a half, while we're waiting for the helicopters to get there, you know, something in the psychology of the moment kind of led us all to, to relive the event of the
4: day. While waiting, President Obama heads back upstairs. Pete obviously follows along. At some point, Obama looks at Pete. <laughs> he tells you, you know, all, all hell could uh, break loose today. What's it like to hear that? Do you ha- do you even respond? Uh, what do you do in that moment?
1: When I when I heard him say that, I thought his presidency is totally on the line.
4: And Pete, as a human, is there any is there any response that you can even give to that to, to the president? I mean, I don't. I mean, maybe you can't answer this, but is it is it like you know, boy, you're right. Boy, are you, are you right, sir? Or is it are you trying to think of something to maybe relax him a bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I acknowledged what he had said, I, I, and you know, I probably just said, "Yeah, I, I know," or something like that. I mean, there's not much you can say.
4: Right.
1: Um, I mean, I think that part of it was, um, you know, he couldn't he couldn't say that to anybody from his national security team, right? Um, but you know, he looked at me as sort of the confidant and friend. Um, and documentarian of his presidency. And I'm just, I just, I, I think he doesn't show his emotions in situations like that mm. uh, outwardly, but I can't imagine the the, the pressure that he must have felt in making this decision.
5: When we we got word that the uh, operation succeeded, that uh, Bin Laden had been found and had resisted and uh, was killed, we of course had to try to make uh, a positive identification. And the first thing that the team on the ground did is they sent back photographs. And without getting into the gory detail, these were not plucked at. But from what we could tell, it sure looked like Bin Laden, but it was a photograph. And then do you want to get um, uh, actual samples back—blood samples, skin oh. samples—you name it. But that takes some time. In the meantime, we thought, uh, let's um, let's get a measurement uh, of um, uh, of the person we thought to be Bin Laden, because famously uh, we knew that Bin Laden uh, was uh, was exceptionally tall, and uh, we knew how tall he was. Uh, but by the time they uh, they had the uh, the body, forgive the gruesome details. The one thing they didn't have was a tape measure, and so the the, the immediate way that they figured out uh, how to you know get a sense of how tall he was was to lie down next to him, uh, one of the seals uh, known to be a certain height to see if they matched up, and that's what they did. So the gallows humor was uh, was pretty obvious.
4: Gallows humor, meaning a multi billion dollar military budget couldn't find a tape measure on hand. Tony thought of something that could be helpful.
5: Anyway, a couple of weeks later, when we were in the Oval Office talking about going down to visit the SEALs, the president, the vice president, senior uh, leaders, we all went down to um, uh, to celebrate them. Uh, we were trying to think of what to give Adam McRaven. And yeah, I suggested, why don't we get him a gold-plated tape measure? <laughs> so that next time around, they've got one. And that's exactly what the president did.
4: The photo was taken sometime between 4.05 and 4.06 p.m., there's some reports that say the photo's taken at 4:06. You say 4:05, so call me crazy, but is there like a? Do we have an actual time code of the photo when it was taken precisely?
1: So it's possible. I mean, it's possible that uh, that I said 4:06. Um, if it was like 4:05:32 right. or something, um, and and then you know the other thing to keep in mind is uh, over time. The the cameras sort of lose their exact
4: timing because in my research, you know, it's people don't and, and correct me if I'm wrong. You, you would you would maybe know it's that uh, that they don't really say exactly the time that Bin Laden was killed, other than to say it would be sometime after only a few minutes after four o'clock. But your photo is at four o five or four o six, so the only thing that I would be able to decipher of that is that. Maybe he had been killed, but that hasn't been said yet through the communications point. So they, the room doesn't uh, know that yet. Yeah. But that's my yeah. own little theory. I have no idea.
5: Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's possible. But when we heard that the mission had succeeded, that we had uh, uh, gotten uh, bin Laden, or at least the people on the ground, believed that we did, you know, there wasn't this moment of jubilation with people uh, screaming and, and high fives and jumping up and down. It was more one of, I'd say, relief and deep satisfaction at um, the job done and, and, and justice accomplished. And that was what permeated the whole thing. I think a sense of purpose, a sense of seriousness, um, but it wasn't a game uh, and it wasn't um, you know uh, a, a, a win-lose thing and, and, and people um, jumping up and down with uh, exultation. It was really a sense of responsibility and both the re- the combination of relief and satisfaction that we've met the responsibility and done right by um uh, by the American people, so that's what I really uh, remember
4: most of all. I found it interesting that in the afternoon, each of the individuals I spoke with recall calling their spouse i I think I remember calling her to say, "Flip on the tube, you know, but you know President's going to go on soon." I called her again
5: and said, "You know." I'll be a little later, but you might want to turn on your TV in about an hour.
4: Of course, Pete had his way of telling his wife.
5: I said, uh, you know, make
1: sure you have CNN or MSNBC on tonight. That's all I said
4: to her. I hung up. Did Barack Obama tell Michelle the night prior what was going on? (laughs)
2: Um, I have no idea. You know, uh, the going in proposition is no. I uh, to tell you the truth, though I, I don't think he did. I and here's one of the reasons why. Um, as someone who's in these jobs, the last thing you kind of want to talk about when you go home is work. <laughs> you know, um, you live it so acutely there, so you kind of want to talk about anything but work. Uh, ben, this is Osama.
4: We got Osama here. I mean, this yeah, is... that's true. That's true. I mean, <laughs>
2: this
4: I is not. I,
2: I don't know. There's only two people who really know the
4: answer to that question. Right. You know that. Right. Fair enough. What really happened is brought to you by Swell Investing. Did you know that every time you open your wallet, you're essentially casting a vote for what you believe in? So let's see here. So far, I voted for a basketball tournament, and then a kale salad with extra carrots. Maybe later on tonight, I'll be voting for a sparkling water, like one that I've never tasted before. With that said, the same goes with investing. Every dollar you invest, you're casting a vote for the future. That's why Swell Investing and we here at What Really Happened want to ask you, what kind of world do you want to invest in? Swell is an impact investing platform that helps you invest in businesses that are creating a healthier, more sustainable planet. Their portfolios feature companies that are tapping renewable energy sources, finding new ways to recycle, developing breakthroughs in health and medicine, eradicating disease, fighting for diversity and inclusion. And the best part? You don't need to sacrifice returns to make an impact. Stocks of socially responsible companies have beaten the S&P 500 for the past 25 years. Every vote counts. And now you can make your dollars count too. We'll even help you get started. Right now, listeners get a $50 bonus when they sign up at swellinvesting.com slash W-R-H that's swellinvesting.com slash W-R-H Swell. Invest in progress. That evening and in the early morning hours of the next day it was time to pick photos to release to the public.
2: The funny funny thing is um, the next day Pete, you know, one of my jobs was to approve the photos that could be released if they involved anything sensitive.
1: I actually picked six or seven out, uh, uh, one from that room. But then throughout the day, you know, he had other meetings,
2: both before and after the raid, and we wanted to paint the broader picture. So Pete, Pete came to me and was like, hey, uh, is it okay if I release this photo? And I was really busy, and I remember I couldn't get to it for a little while. you know. And I didn't even really look at it, and I finally said to him, I'm like, oh, look, hey, I'm really busy, but uh, as long as you make sure that if there are any sensitive documents on the table that you obscure them, because that was, you know, that's what we would do in that case. He's like yeah, yeah, no problem. I can do that. I'm like, sure, just then release it. And Ben
1: sort of has it right. I mean, the, the, I showed him the pictures and he said, I'm fine with them all, but you better check that one uh, to see if it has a classified document or not. And that's the picture that has become
4: well known. The famous photo has documents in front of Hillary Clinton that are classified. So Pete goes to John Brennan, the Homeland Security Advisor.
1: Showed him the picture, and I said, is this classified? And he said, I don't know. Let's go talk to Mike Morrell.
4: Morrell was the deputy director of the CIA. Morrell confirms that it is a classified document.
1: And because of that, you know, we couldn't use the photo as is. I then asked the question, well, what if we blurred the document? Would you be okay with that? And Mike said to me, uh, "Yes, as long as John sees it before you, you know, make it public." And so that's that's how that whole process works.
2: I've always thought that if I'd known how iconic this photo would have been, I might have been like, "Well, Pete, is there one that I'm in." <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, probably would have, like, you know, uh, helped along my career. Yeah. But all that said, I... Uh, I appreciate uh, your
4: honesty. I didn't think you would you would play that. F- oh, that's cool.
2: Uh, no, I, I'm a human being, right? Yeah. And I'm like, saying, like, damn, I, was, I wasn't down there for that. Uh, I'm like yeah. one of the only people who was on the
4: picture. This means the photo was approved by the highest levels of the Obama administration. But it sounds like, according to Ben, the criteria wasn't much in that it wasn't like there was some committee analyzing it. Other than blurring out classified information, and then I know there's some cropping involved. Are there any other changes that you make to a photo, color saturation, this sort of thing? I I think
1: we try to follow journalistic standards, uh, which which was, you know, adjust the uh, highlight, shadow, and color balance. You know, we just didn't uh, feel that was uh, appropriate, and this was also the only time. We ever blurred out a, a classified document if we had a picture that had a classified document after that we just would not
4: make that picture public so this is sort of a rare occasion and so in the end why that photo
1: we didn't see any point to do more than one the, the uh, situation was similar in every frame you know people's expressions were slightly different, maybe, and um, you know, I, I picked uh, along with Jen Pochi, who was a photo editor for the White House, with me. Uh, we had it. I narrowed it down to six right away from that room, and then she and I went through the six over and over again, trying to you know pick what we saw was the best one, and that was the one we settled
4: on. So, what are some of the features of the photo that you're looking at? in those photos of the, from the Situation Room that helps you narrow it down to that one? Is it uh, the president's demeanor? Is it uh, the room into, uh, like what are one of a few of the, the main factors that you're looking for?
1: We're just trying to pick the best photo. And that's both subjective and instinctive. Um, you know, number one, you're looking at people's faces. And inevitably, when you have that many people in a picture, you know, somebody's going to be caught in mid-blank or glancing down, or you know, uh, so you sort of like looking at those kinds of things. And it just when we when we looked at this one, there was a one or two others that we were considering, uh, you know, in the for the final edit. But when we when we looked at this one, everybody's face looked appropriate for the situation and what I, it was. To me, it expressed the tension that I had felt in the room, the anxiety that was ever-present for those 40
5: minutes. I thought that picture best expressed it.
4: When Tony was leaving the Situation Room that night, he noticed a TV was on.
5: Outside of the Situation Room, the the big conference room, are are four TV screens that are constantly showing what's on. The the networks are on cable TV. And after everything was said and done, And um, by this point, it's getting on to close to eight o'clock at night. Um, And we had started to notify Congress and we'd started to notify the TV networks. The president wanted to speak to the American people at at, at nine o'clock. And um, we were, again, making all sorts of final preparations. As I was walking out of the situation room, the networks were starting to interrupt their their programming, their primetime programming. And I looked at the screens and as it happened, the show that was being interrupted on NBC was the finale of Celebrity Apprentice, starring one Mr. Donald Trump. God, I don't,
4: I don't even you know where make this uh, stuff you up. can't, you can't make that one up. I can't. Yeah. What's interesting to me is something really simple. They were reminded of why this mattered. Each of them, without me asking or prodding, and in fact, two of them just before hanging up, wanting to add something.
5: All said, The only other thing that really strikes me from that from that day was that night when all was said and done and the president addressed the nation. After a firefight,
0: they killed Osama bin Laden and took custody of his body.
5: And uh, we still had some more work to do and went back and did it. And I think I finally left the White House that night sometime after midnight.
0: For over two decades, bin Laden has been al-Qaeda's leader and symbol and has continued to plot attacks against our country and our friends and allies. But as I was leaving, I heard the sound that I couldn't quite
5: identify.
3: The most shocked I was that day, that evening, was coming
5: out of the White House late that night. And it was this kind of almost rumbling. And I was kind of blown away when I kind of finally went outside the building. And then when I finally... Um, got out of the White House compound, I realized it was thousands of people who gathered in front of the residents. I wouldn't have
3: in a, in a hundred years predicted what you saw on the streets of Washington and ultimately in New York and other places too. You know, People out on the street, flag waving,
5: that kind of celebration. Uh, just um, cheering. Uh, and it was the most extraordinary sight to see these flags waving and people who spontaneously gathered. At midnight. I don't, and one incredibly gigantic American flag. I don't know where you get one of those at midnight. Um, I I just remember being truly shocked like,
3: no way. How did that happen? Hmm. (laughs) You know, because who's up at, you know, midnight on or 11 p.m. on a Sunday night watching CNN waiting to, you know, to see what comes
4: up. Right. Um, It, It almost feels like to me you guys were so, which makes sense, focused on the mission. No one had really thought well, if we pull this off, there's going to be some celebrations.
5: Yeah, that was, the. It was. I don't think that, I, I don't think that crossed anyone's mind. Sure it right. didn't cross mine and we were kind of oblivious to it. Everyone, you're, 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 in your, um, you know, you're in your vacuum and you're just um, in your tunnel and you're just focused on everything. Uh, you know, I just um, stood off in the, in the distance, not, not part of the crowd, just, um, just looking at it. And it, I really can't put into words what it, what it felt like, but I think that's when the the wider repercussions really um, really hit me. Certainly, if you're really 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 lucky, you get a, a you know a couple of privileged moments uh, in your career, uh, and that was uh, that was one of them.
4: In the world as it is, a memoir of the Obama White House, Ben Rhodes talks a lot about just how much the president believes in the power of storytelling that every moment, every speech, every action, taken or not taken, is part of a larger narrative. With that in mind, I asked Ben, knowing the profound importance of story, do you think that's one of the reasons the president made killing bin Laden such an integral part in shaping how he looked at terrorism, that this was a chapter in American history that people wanted to see close?
0: Uh, Yes, I think... uh... That's an interesting way to approach it. It was nearly 10 years ago that a bright September day was darkened by the worst attack on the American people in our history. Because I think what
2: was apparent to us at the beginning of the Obama administration, even in the campaign, is that the wars that were launched after 9-11 in Afghanistan and then Iraq and this more amorphous global war on terrorism were not going to lead to clear endpoints.
0: There was not gonna be a surrender ceremony like at the end of World War II. The images of 9-11 are seared into our national memory. And there
2: had to be some sense for the American people that
0: justice was delivered for 9-11. Yet, as a country, we will never tolerate our security being threatened, nor stand idly by when our people have been killed. That we dealt with the people who did this to us you know, both for
2: our own national psyche, but also to try to right-size our approach to terrorism so that we don't feel like we are uh, needing to be uh, overextended
0: in the way that, that that we have been. And so... We can say to those families who have lost loved ones to Al Qaeda's terror, justice has been done.
2: Walking out of the White House the night after bin Laden was killed and seeing all the people in the streets and seeing people who, you know, had grown up their whole lives, in a way, uh, with this reality. And and it felt like the closest thing we were going to get to that type of psychic
4: endpoint. And I think that is why this photo has become iconic. While the wars in the Middle East continue, you could say the war on Osama bin Laden ended that day. It was a pivotal moment. And that photo represents not just the operation, but a country that had lost so much, and for 10 years was unable to find and kill the man largely responsible. Although nobody is smiling, far from it, the photo is, oddly enough, in some ways, a celebration. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, or in this case, technically, 4,070 words, but this photo in our story today tells us about those in the room when it counted, those in the room whose names aren't splashed on headlines or are sitting down for interviews with 60 Minutes. But they were there. They have played an important role during this time in American history and can help Pete paint that picture to tell us what really happened. Next week on What Really Happened. Growing up at the family dinner table, he would talk in poems and riddles. He ended up going to a kindergarten for black children where he was taught Swahili. At 10 years old, he went with his mother to China for a year, visiting nude beaches and red light districts. At 13 years old, he began recording in a studio. This is the story of a kid who grew up to be Kanye West. Questions seem to arise about Kanye's every move, from his performances to his antics to his marriage. But Freud would say we should understand his childhood to actually get to the bottom of what really happened.